usual, as we work through the message today, if anybody has any questions, you can jump on slido.com and type in RevCDA and um, type in your questions there, and we'll take a look at them when we're, when we're done. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we just want to take a moment to, to pause in your presence as we open up our wor- your word and um, seek to understand more clearly who you are, who we are in you. Um, as we talk about things this morning that are hard to understand, God, I just pray for grace. Pray for grace for me to communicate well. I pray, pray for grace for Uh, this congregation, to hear you speak. Lord God, I pray for those in this uh, body that are hurting right now, many who are um, just struggling with with illness, um, surgery, recovery, um, financial challenges. Um, God, so so many burdens, especially they get magnified this time of year. I just pray for your goodness and mercy and grace for us, that we would experience joy in this season of Advent and Christmas as we celebrate your love for us in the incarnation. Lord God, I just pray that as we, uh, as we study this morning, that you would just speak. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we've been talking about uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, right? The, this is the season where Jesus, where we celebrate Jesus coming as a human being, the eternal second person of the Trinity becoming a human. And we said that we were going to talk about four reasons why God became human. We said in the first week that he became human because the prophecy said he would, right? The Old Testament said that God would become human to save us. Then we said that, that, that God became human to defeat sin and death, that there is a, a sense in which God does not have access to death because he is immortal, he is life, and to become human gave him access to the enemy of death in order to defeat it. Last week we said that God became human to show us what God is like, that there's... Um, There's this distance between us and God. He's so incomprehensible that we needed to be able to see something to really understand who God is. And so God became a man to show us who he was, who he is. This morning, as we wrap up this four-week series, we are going to talk about one more reason why God became human. And what I'm calling this is... um, God became human to share his divine nature with us. And this is going to be, maybe, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone preach a sermon on this subject. I, this might be some, some new stuff for you. Uh, so that's the Q&R, ask questions. Uh, but to jump into this, we talked about last week about how Jesus shows us what God is like. Right? We, we, we come to understand who God is by looking at Jesus. But in one sense, 
That's not what God is like in his essence. Remember, we talked last week about how God is outside the universe. He is outside of our comprehension. He is immaterial. He is atemporal. He's uh, aspatial. He's not inside space or time. He's got these categories that, like, we just don't have the mind to understand. And we can't understand, we can't comprehend him in the state of brokenness that we live in. We talked about how God's presence is, is kind of radioactive. He was present in the Holy of Holies in Israel, but it was this, this room that was separate from the people. And, and for our own protection, we were, he was hidden from us. Because of his goodness and glory, we couldn't bear it. But there's going to be a time when that all changes. I'm sure you guys have probably seen online um, those videos of like the, the babies that have, um, that are, don't see very well, or maybe they're hard of hearing and, and they get a, a cochlear implant for their ears or they get glasses for their eyes for the very first time and, and their mom and dad film them seeing their parents for the very first time. You've seen these videos? where the baby is just kind of like, you know, doing this or whatever like babies do. And then all of a sudden, it's like this light bulb goes on for them and they smile because, oh, that's what mom looks like. Or I can hear dad and I've never really heard before. And it's this really beautiful grin on this tiny baby. See, in some sense, we are like those babies. We don't hear very well. We can't see very clearly. But there's coming a day when that's all going to change. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. So we're going to talk about two things this morning. These are two big theological words, and I think it's valuable to learn theological words as long as we define them. These words are glorification and the beatific vision. Maybe you've heard of those things, maybe not. We'll define them right now. First of all, the beatific vision. This is, this is a word that's been used in the history of our faith for hundreds and hundreds of years, and this is the idea that someday all of us in Christ will actually see God as he really is. Here's a uh, definition of this idea by a man named Ulrich Zwingli, who was a Protestant reformer in the 16th century. He says, seeing God himself in his very substance in his nature, with all his endowments and powers to enjoy all these, not sparingly, but in full measure, not with the cloying effect that generally accompanies satiety, but with the agreeable completeness which involves no surfeiting. And I had to look some of those words up. But what he's saying is, you know the feeling you get when you eat a really good meal and you haven't gone too far, you've just eaten just enough and you feel really good? He says, it's like that, but always. Like you just get to keep eating and never feel overfull. You always feel satisfied. And this idea that one day we will actually spend 
time in the presence of God, viewing him as he is, this is the ultimate hope of our lives. This is what there's the the cliche that we all have this God-shaped hole in us. We all have this deep desire that we cannot figure out how to fill. And the thing that fills it is God himself. Philosopher Hans Borsma says, the Christian life, according to nearly the entire tradition, aims at God himself. To see God is to be happy, for God himself is happiness. So when we see him in eternity, we will be happy. If we take this as the aim of life, then we arrange our lives individually and ecclesially in the church so as to make them fit that aim. Our disciplines and practices will then aim at this eternal contemplation of God. We will make a point to do nothing that is out of sync with this ultimate supernatural goal. And we will refuse to treat any this-worldly thing, fame, sex, wealth, etc., as ultimate, as the be-all and end-all. For every one of such this-worldly goods is useful only if and when they help us reach our final end or purpose, the beatific vision. So here the end determines the means. It seems to me that, especially in the West, we are often too far much at home in the world, as if it were our ultimate destiny. We need to become heavenly-minded again, learning to think and act with a view to our ultimate end, the contemplation of God. And so this, he's not saying that this life that we live now, it doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter, and we talk frequently about the things that matter about the life we live, but it does mean that all of our experiences today in this life are meant to shape us into the kinds of people that can experience God to the full. So what does that look like? This is where we get to that other theological term, glorification. So there's a couple different words that Christians have used for this, glorification. Uh, some, Some Christians have used the word deification, which we'll talk about that in a second. There's a word in the Eastern church called theosis. Um, They're all the same. And it's not something we talk about very much. So I want to give you some quotes from church history, and they're all kind of uncomfortable. I was sharing these with a friend of mine who's a pastor in town, and he was like, ah, that makes me uncomfortable. But these are all Orthodox Christian scholars, brothers and sisters in the faith from the past, and here's what they say. Athanasius in the fourth century says, for he, Jesus, became man that we might become God. That's a weird thing to say. But Irenaeus in the second century says something similar. He says, the word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, did through his transcendent love become what we are, that that he might bring to us even what he himself is. That guy Zwingli in the 16th century again says, one must be drawn to God and deified so that we might be fully emptied, cleaned, and able to deny ourselves, no longer trusting in our mind, heart, and works, but putting all our confidence in God, our sole hope to which we cling. For thus we are being transformed into God. John Calvin, hero of the faith, says, the highest good of the soul is likeness to God, where when the soul has grasped the knowledge of God, it is wholly transformed into him. And then lastly, our friend C.S. Lewis, he says, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, 
nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we are gods and he is going to make good his words. Okay, all of those ostensibly intelligent Christian thought leaders from the course of the last 2,000 years see something about our future and they describe it as being made into God. And if you're like me, that just doesn't sound right. But we don't want to be people that are exclusively tied to tradition. Tradition is helpful, but we want to be people of the Word. So what does the Bible say? Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says in Ephesians that he prays that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And in Romans 8, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's where we get that word. So these these Christians throughout history are picking up a theme that the Scriptures don't talk a lot about, but they hint at, that there is something about who we are now that is going to be transformed to be like God. So first of all, before we talk any more about it, what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that we believe in pantheism. That's the belief that everything is God and God is everything. That we kind of, um, that, that the whole like universe itself is God. We don't, we don't believe that as Christians. God is a distinct personal being as opposed to other distinct personal beings. This does not mean that in glorification we lose our personhood. Sometimes in the New Age they talk about how like the drop becomes the ocean in the afterlife. And and what that means is that the drop actually disappears, right? The, The drop is indistinguishable from the ocean. But that's not what Scripture teaches. We aren't completely enveloped by God. We aren't lost in God. We maintain our identity as individuals as God maintains His. And it's not polytheism. The the Mormon faith teaches that the Christian becomes a God like our God and then gets his own planet to rule over as God, and that's not what we're saying either. So what does it mean to be glorified? It means we are transformed inside and out in such a way that we will be able to experience God like he really is. And for us to do that requires both moral perfection and physical transformation. So this is how we get to the question, why did God become human in our passage in 1 Corinthians? 
Paul has this lengthy discussion on resurrection, and we're jumping in in the middle of it. But he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven." Paul says that all of those things about us, corruption, dishonor, weakness, they're all transformed into incorruption, glory, and power through our connection with Christ. See, our our connection to Adam, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, our connection to Adam makes us a certain kind of creature, a creature of the dust, a creature that's broken and sinful and flawed, a creature that can't stand the presence of God. God says, if you you see me, you would die. Our connection to Christ makes us a different kind of creature. Paul uses the language of a natural body and a spiritual body, but he's talking in both instances about bodies. Our bodies now are, are animated by a broken soul, a sinful soul. But our bodies in the future will be animated spiritually, empowered by God's Spirit. The resurrection life that we experience is in our bodies. It changes how our body is constituted, how it is governed. And Paul argues through this passage that Jesus' incarnation, his assuming humanity, is the mechanism that God uses to transform our humanity into something greater. This is why Athanasius can say, he became man so that we might become God. Not God in himself in totality, but of a different kind of creature that can live in God's presence, that can commune with God. In order to be infused with the life of God as people, God brought himself into the life of humanity. And this was a really important aspect of the early church's theology when they were figuring all this stuff out. We kind of take it for granted that that we believe in in one God who is three persons and that Jesus Christ is is God, the second person, but also human and and all that stuff. That all got worked out, you know, like 1,500 years ago. Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century, he, he said, for that which is not assumed is not healed. And what he meant by that is any part of humanity that Jesus didn't bring on himself, well, that didn't go to the cross. That wasn't redeemed. And so all of us, every part of us, our body, our soul, our mind, had to have been assumed by Christ. And he took it to the cross to redeem it. There was a a heresy in the early church that Gregory was writing against called Apollinarianism, and and, and Apollinarius said that that Jesus didn't have a human mind. 
He had, there were parts of Jesus that were human, but his mind was just divine. And, and Gregory said, no, if his mind is just divine, then he's not saving our minds. He's not redeeming our minds. He had to have every part of us in order to save us. And we fall into this thinking sometimes. If you've ever said like, well, yeah, of course, of course Jesus could act that way because he's God. Well, he is God, but he's also human in, made every way, in every way like us. There isn't an aspect of humanity that Jesus didn't have except for sin. And so since my mind, my, my body, and my soul, all of me is broken and defective and ruined by sin, not completely, but thoroughly, right? Jesus on the cross suffers the penalty for sin, death. But because he is also God, death cannot hold him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Jesus took our junk and gave us God's goodness. Have any of you ever made mayonnaise? Mayonnaise is, I like mayonnaise. Not everybody likes mayonnaise. Uh, I really like mayonnaise. Um, and homemade mayonnaise is way better than store-bought mayonnaise. But mayonnaise is a mixture of oil and vinegar, and vinegar is, is water-based. And, and oil and water, they don't go together, right? You've seen this, like the oil floats on the top. But mayonnaise doesn't do that. Why? Because you put an egg yolk in mayonnaise, and the egg yolk has a compound in it that's called an emulsifier. What an emulsifier does is it, it holds on on one end of the molecule to the oil and on the other end of the molecule to the water and, and brings them together. All of our analogies break down, but Jesus is kind of like the egg yolk in this one. Jesus is connected to humanity, and he's also connected to divinity. And because of his uniqueness, he can bind us to God in a way that is not possible without him. We go on in 1 Corinthians 15. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with immortality and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Through Christ, we are promised that we will be completely transformed. We will be made to fit the kingdom of God, to experience God's presence in full. Like we said, in the, in the Holy of Holies in, in Israel, God lived there above the Ark of the Covenant, and nobody could go in because it was dangerous. We talked about how God's goodness is, is something like being radioactive. We cannot go in there, be, not, because, not because he's like, he thinks we're icky, 
The whole, the whole Levitical system in the Old Testament, when you get in that part of your Bible reading, you're like, what is going on here? All of that stuff is meant for the people's protection because God is too good, too pure, too holy for broken, sinful creatures to experience. And so one day a year, the high priest in Israel had to go through all of these rituals and exercises to cleanse himself from sin And then he would go into the Holy of Holies to offer up an offering for the sins of the people just once. And they got to where they would, the the tradition goes that they would tie a rope to his leg just in case something went wrong and they could get him out because God was dangerous. And Jesus in his incarnation, we talked about this last week, Jesus is God in human flesh. And so he's this, he's the, Hebrew says that he is this, the complete, the final revelation of what God is like. We get to see God's glory in a way that we can understand with our natural senses, hidden in a human body. But that's not the end for us. We are destined to experience God in his glory unfiltered. In the book of Exodus, Moses wants to see God. He he has this really intimate, close relationship with God where God is speaking to him and delivering the law to him, and and it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but he wants more. He says, I I want to see your face, I want to see your glory. And and God says, "If if I show you my glory, it would kill you. You can't do that. But I will, I'll put you in the, the cleft of this rock, and I'll put my hand over you, and I'll walk by, and then you can see the back as I, of me as I go by. And that's such a weird idea. But this is what God says. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. And you read on, and and Moses, just seeing the back of God's glory, ends up, his face glows, and he goes down to the camp, and it's a big thing. But for God, this isn't just like a bummer problem. Oh, you can't see me and live. Too bad. See, God's whole plan of salvation, he understands this weakness, and he remedies it through union with Christ. Sometimes I've, I've heard passages like this in, in 1 Corinthians taught um, with the analogy of the, the earth suit and the space suit. Maybe you've heard this before, that, that we live on earth and we have this body that's conditioned for earth, but if we go out into space, we need to put on a space suit because the earth suit doesn't work in space. And that's helpful as far as it goes, but the problem with that is, is that it's not just the outside that needs to be transformed. It's all of it. Our insides are unable to experience God just as much as our outsides. And so we're, we're invited in this process, this process that begins with something called justification. Justification is this moment in time when you decide, I am going to follow Christ. I'm going to accept the offer that is being given to me to believe the gospel I'm going to swear my allegiance to Jesus. I'm going to repent to turn from my sins. 
Many of those of us who are Christians in this room today, that, that happened for you in the past. But then we get to this next process that we call sanctification. Sanctification doesn't happen in one day. It happens over a lifetime. And it's a process of becoming more like Christ. We talk about sanctification all the time, right? The things that we go through in our lives, whether they're good things or bad things, suffering or joy, they're all designed to shape us to be more like Jesus. And we're walking through this process today. But that process will end one day in glorification when we have been completed, when we are made new fully. And so some of the process, when you read 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's talking about bodies, that's good because part of the process has to do with our material makeup. Someday when either we our, these physical bodies die and we await the resurrection when Jesus returns, or if we're alive when, re- when Jesus returns, we will be changed, Paul says, instantly. Our bodies will be transformed into something new. But much of this process has to do with our holiness, it has to do with our character. Hebrews 12 says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. One criteria for seeing God, holiness, moral perfection. God is morally perfect. He is good. And to be able to experience him in his fullness, we must be morally perfect as well. Jesus says the same thing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How do you become pure in heart? Are you pure in heart? I'm not, right? Like we're, we're all in this process. We've, none of us have arrived at this destination. And so we're given these guidelines in God's word with the help of God's people to pray, to practice self-discipline. Many of us through the Advent season are fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays because it's a self-discipline that helps us become more holy, Reading God's word, meditating on it, understanding it, and applying it to our lives, that's super important. We can be avid Bible readers, but if we don't actually do the things that we're told, it doesn't matter. We're given choices in our lives, and we're allowed to respond in godliness. We're allowed to suffer sometimes. Nobody likes that part, but it's part of the process of becoming like Christ. And God is constantly giving us all these opportunities to be made more holy. And we should be becoming more holy, more like Jesus, less selfish, more compassionate, less greedy, more patient. And it's, there's this balance, right, where we want to be people that recognize our sinful selves. We want to be people that repent, that, re- that, that, go, that, that understand that, that we are a work in progress, that are honest about our flaws and our struggles and, and, and even just the wicked things in our hearts, right? But we should also be people that can, maybe not right now, but after you get some mileage with Jesus, look back and go like, wow, I'm, I'm a different person than I was 10 years ago. Praise God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am being matured. I am being shaped into something new. 
So what does this sanctification process have to do with seeing God? All this work of sanctification and the call to participate in the work of becoming more like Christ is not simply because Jesus is good and beautiful and worth emulating because he totally is all those things, but it's also because our ability to experience God is dependent on our transformation. God says, be holy like I'm holy, and he means it, like C.S. Lewis said. It's popular to talk about how like, life, is, life is a journey. The journey is more important than the destination. And there's some truth to that. We want to be people who are present in the world that we live in because we've been placed in this time, in this season, to be lights in our communities and our families. But where are we going? Where is all this headed? My family went to Washington, D.C. in October, and um, my youngest daughter, Nora, loves to love things. She loves things hard. And uh, one of her favorite things to say is, best day ever. And uh, she said it a lot on our trip. But she, like if, if we got on the plane and flown up in the air and circled for 15 minutes and landed and went back home, she would have just been thrilled to death. Right? Because the airplane and the noise and the seats and the windows and the, everything about it was just so awesome. But that wasn't the destination. We were going to Washington, D.C. to see all the things, to spend time together as a family. The journey is essential to the process, right? We had to get on that plane to get to Washington. And it might even be fun sometimes if you're 10 and and you're like four feet tall. But the reason we got on the plane is because of the destination, not because of the plane ride. And so as we think about walking with Jesus, and I want us all to be people who are deeply concerned with walking with Jesus, let us not forget that we're going somewhere. We are being transformed into people who can actually experience absolute perfection and goodness and joy totally unfiltered in the presence of God. So why does this matter? A few reasons. First of all, it gives meaning to our lives, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is what we're made for. God didn't have to create us, right? Like, he's, he's free. He's, as a trinity, he experiences love and joy and perfect happiness all by himself. But out of his goodness and grace, he thought, why don't we create a universe where millions or billions of other creatures can experience this with us? And maybe, I mean, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. I don't know all of you. And... And maybe you don't believe in God. But the funny thing about like, the, the atheist community that, that is, is growing, it seems, every, every day is if, if you don't have any transcendent purpose to your life, you have to create it, don't you? 
Because like an honest person who looks at the world and sees blind chance and randomness and no purpose and, you know, the universe kind of exploded from nothing and it's slowly dying and your life is going to, you know, you're going to grow and live and die and no one's going to remember you and then the sun's going to blow up and kill everybody anyway and what's it all matter? Like the honest person with that worldview would accept that and live a life of just what's called nihilism. There is no meaning, right? But most people that don't believe in God still believe that their life matters. They still go to school. They still get a job. They still want to uh, give to charity and raise a family and have grandkids and see joy in the world. Why? If it's all random and it doesn't matter. Because something in us knows that it does. Something in us knows that life does have meaning to it. And this is what we're made for. We're made to experience God. Secondly, this idea brings hope in the midst of suffering. Sometimes the life that we are given is really good, and sometimes it's not. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what, on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In this letter, Paul talks about getting beaten and shipwrecked and slandered and going hungry and being thrown in jail. And he says, this light affliction is just for a moment. And I don't understand that. But Paul is so committed to the destination that he's going to that all of the bumps in the journey are so small in comparison. And I know some of you are experiencing a lot of pain right now. I know some of you really well, and we talk, and, and it's difficult. And to, to sit down and be like, you know what? It's just a light affliction. Don't worry about it. That's super insensitive. And I don't want to come across as saying that because pain is real and it's hard. But there is a sense in which looking back someday on the life that you have lived all of the difficult things that you're experiencing will seem incredibly small compared to the goodness and glory of God. Job, in in Job 19, long time ago, says, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see Him myself. My eyes will look at Him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Job's children have been killed. His possessions have been stolen. His health has been taken from him. His wife's advice was, curse God and die. That's how bad it was for Job. His wife was ready to give up. And the thing that keeps him going is the fact that I'm going to see God someday. third reason this matters is, is it's, this, is a, this is a joy and it's a pleasure that we cannot begin to understand, but is worth pondering. 
Jonathan Edwards, an American pastor in the 18th century, says, the pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. There is no darkness that can bear such powerful light. This is what Edwards reminds himself of. The psalmist in Psalm 17 says, I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. And in Psalm 42, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? I'm afraid I don't think about this very much. I don't, I don't think about my destination like I ought to. I'm too busy. Anybody else busy? <laughs> We've just got stuff to do. But these, um, the, the psalmist and these heroes of the faith are saying, spend time pondering the presence of God. Spend time pondering the fact that one day, Christian, you will experience joy unimaginable. C.S. Lewis has this really awesome illustration. He, he says, talking about this sort of thing, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He, he, in this analogy, he says that there, there is this young child who has never been on a holiday by the ocean, has no concept of the sunshine and the sand and the birds and the smells and the warm water, can't even grasp it. But he does live in this little mud pit, and he makes little baked goods out of the dirt and the filth, and he's content with that. And he can't be convinced to leave because he has no framework for something better. And Lewis's call is for us to trust the Lord that there is something better than all the things we think will fulfill us. And number four, the, this last one is, is something that I, I'm uncertain of this one, but I'm going to throw it out there because I think it's interesting. Our joy in the kingdom may be in proportion to our faithful desire right now. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus seems to be clearly saying that we can choose to orient our lives in such a way that we increase our prosperity in the kingdom of God. Paul says something similar in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, For no one can lay any foundation other than that which has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. 
If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, we could speculate all day about what the things are that we're building with, gold and silver and precious stones, and how exactly they get transferred to the kingdom. But many throughout the history of the church have understood this as a way of describing our capacity for joy in the future. Augustine in the fifth century says, this is how God stretches our desire through delay, stretches our soul through desire, and makes it large enough by stretching it. We like to make pizza uh, at our house. Joanna makes a really good sourdough, and we make pizza out of it. And we get little balls, all four of us. And it's up to each of us to stretch them out to fit our pizza. And it's very easy to just stretch it a little bit and get a little, little disc. But I really like toppings. They're the best part of the pizza. And so I want a much larger pizza because I want to be able to hold many more toppings. And this is what Augustine is saying. He's saying, you have a capacity for infinite, eternal joy. And what God is doing in your life right now is stretching you out so that you can hold more of it. Because the joy that comes from him is never-ending. It's infinite in its nature. But your, the ability that you have to receive it is limited. Everyone that belongs to Christ will experience the kingdom of God and the fullness of joy. But it might be the case that our capacity for that joy will be different because of how much we have allowed Christ to shape us in our lives today. And this is the kind of thing that should cause us to reflect on how we are living. What do you spend your time on, your money? What kinds of thoughts frequently occupy your mind? Are there good things in your life that are worth giving up for better things? We are a, a very mixed age here. The, the, the psalmist says that we get 80 years to live if we're lucky. I'm right on that knife's edge of being uh, on, on the far side of that. Some of you are much closer to that number. Some of you are much farther away. But there's an opportunity to strive after the things that God is doing to make you more fit for his kingdom. And this isn't, this isn't a scare tactic to say, like, if, if you aren't living your life a certain way or following certain disciplines or, or, or certain practices or um, focusing your heart and your mind in certain ways, that your salvation is in danger. Our salvation is by grace. It's a gift that we are given to be a part of God's family. And Christian, you have been adopted. You are already a son and daughter of the king. But there is a question that the scriptures give to us of how does the way that we live our lives change the way we will experience the kingdom? And we all have to decide, like, however many days we have left, how am I going to live it? What am I going to do 
How am I going to act? What am I going to prioritize? What am I going to say no to because it's just not worth it as a distraction from the things that are going to make me, uh, stretch me out and make me more able to experience God's goodness. Jesus Christ, by becoming human, opens up the door for us to this indescribable reality of life forever. He transforms us into a kind of creature that I can't even fathom so that I can experience the most wonderful, powerful, happy relational connection that exists, the triune God. And this is the greatest gift that God has for us, his presence. And I'll say that I'm bad at this, right? Like I I struggle with sin. I get distracted from pursuing Jesus. I get bored with godliness. You ever just get bored with being a Christian sometimes? Maybe that's just me. But I, I want to experience God. I want more of God. And maybe you're here today and, and maybe you're like, yeah, I don't really care. I don't want to acknowledge that. But do you want to care? Like, is there a part of you that would say, man, I wish I was in a place to want to experience more of God? God can work with that. Take that to him. Get, get alone with God in prayer and say, God, I don't, I don't even know that I care about this kind of stuff. But I want to. Help me to want to. One last word from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. I love Paul's language here. First of all, he says, I'm I'm still a work in progress. But I know where I'm going. I know what the destination is. And I focus on it because there's a prize at the end. And then he says, everybody follow me, right? I'm in a, I have a lot of conversations with people and the idea of like the question like if, if everybody looked to you for, for counsel on how to be a Christian, would you be okay with that? And everybody's like, no, don't follow me. Don't, don't live my life the way I live it. I don't want to be a role model. But Paul does. Paul's so focused on Jesus. He says, like, imitate my life. And then he encourages other people in the church to live lives that are worth imitating. Because this is the work of the church to walk with one another in compassion and grace and pursue the prize together. And we all have a role to play in that, and we should all have a desire for that. 
So that's the beatific vision and the idea of glorification in a nutshell. Let's do some questions. How does this work? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> what? Does this mean we need to reach more perfection before the end of our lives? If we don't reach it, we can't be with God. No. So Paul is clear that if we, if, when our life ends, we are transformed into beings that can be in God's presence, that we are morally perfect in our glorification, that that work is done in us at that time. So, so whether you, uh, you know, the, if, if, if someone becomes a Christian on their deathbed and then passes into this next life, if a young child is a Christian and dies before we would consider their time, if, if somebody follows Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years, we all end up made into creatures that can be in the presence of God. But there is this curious little thing in the Scriptures about reward, about um, Jesus, Jesus uses financial terms, talents, and cities, and leadership positions. Paul talks about um, be, our works being tested and some of them being destroyed, but some of them passing on. And we just get this hint in a few different places, that while everyone in the kingdom of God will be with Christ and glad to be there, that some of us will have an experience of greater joy than others. Why would our capacity for future joy depend on us when we have been redeemed by Jesus? I think our redemption by Jesus is assured, right? We are all, if you're a Christian here, you are redeemed by Jesus. To have, but again, the capacity for joy, and again, this is just kind of Augustine's thought process of what the rewards in heaven look like. But we see throughout the Scriptures that we are called to follow. We are called to live lives of holiness. We are called to... Um, walk in the footsteps of our king, and we are also told in, in 1 Corinthians that we will be judged. We'll not be judged for our salvation because we've been saved by Christ, but we will be judged for the life that we have lived, and we will be given um, rewards, or we will lose rewards based on the time, the things that we've done in this life. And so that's the... That's the, the strange part of this thought experiment is that the person that is has been shaped by toil, by suffering, by a long road of obedience to Christ, do they have more to rejoice in in the kingdom than the person that has trusted in Jesus, but just kind of floundered and not really taking their walk seriously and lived in kind of a haphazard way. 
I don't know the answer to that. We're, like Paul said, uh, we talked about this last week, we're, we're peering through a glass darkly at this point. We don't, we don't have total clarity on what this looks like, but I do think we have clarity on the idea that Jesus calls us to walk and that there are consequences on the other side as we enter the kingdom. And again, they're not consequences that are intended to make us fearful or to threaten us because we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift, right? But our experience of the kingdom may look different depending on how serious we took our walk down here. So, lots to ponder. We're going to take communion. We participate in the communion meal. It's a reminder that we are participating in the life of Christ. We have died with him and been raised to new life. In one sense, that has already happened, right? We've been justified. And in another sense, it's happening every day. We're being sanctified. We're being transformed into his image. And then in another sense, it will happen fully one day in the future. But we take the bread and the cup and we take it into our bodies as a reminder that it is Christ in us that is doing this work of transformation, that it is his power, that it is his grace, it is his goodness. And so I would just invite you all as we sing to come to the communion table, to take the bread and the cup back to your seats, to participate in the body and the blood of Christ. And just remember that uh, your life is found in Him. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.